Hello and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. We're pleased you've been able to join us for tonight's program. God's design for the church is not just for us to come in, experience worship, experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit, experience the gifts of the Spirit, experience the preaching of the Word, but the purpose of church is so that when that happens, we can go out into society and challenge lies. And there are lots of them because the church is called to be the pillar and buttress of truth in a society. In the average household, whether people are related or not, each member enjoys privileges and carries responsibilities. So too in the Greco-Roman household, as described by historical documents and found in the language of the New Testament of the Bible. Why does it matter what a household looked like in the first century? because God uses the concept of a household to show who he is for us. In fact, the parallels are remarkable. So let's join Dr. Corbett now as he continues in his series, The Household of God. So let's pray. Father, we need you to speak to us now. Father, as we look at your word that the Holy Spirit has given through men to a people that is now for us, I pray that our eyes will see what you've put there and that, Father, our hearts will be filled. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We, we have been looking at the household of God. and We've mentioned that as we go through Scripture, we see this reference to household. And it would be too easy to assume that this is talking about a household in the same way that the ABS talks about households, and that's not the case. A household was a particular thing, and they, and they did come in various shapes and sizes. There were some households that were a basic unit, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But the households that are identified in the book of Acts is where the apostles were able to lead the leader of that household, known as the householder, to Christ, were almost certainly quite substantial physical buildings, the architecture, and comprised of quite a few people. So not just mum, dad and the kids. So we'll see that in a moment. Now this is an expression, the household of God, is used throughout the New Testament. Not only is it as an expression used, but there are terms that are associated with the expression, the household of God, that are used and we've identified some of those including the expression that Jesus used in John 15 where he said I no longer call you servants household expression but I call you friends again a household a Greco-Roman household term an expression because a friend had to have a certain status and a friend had to have an equal status and the only ones who could have that status were householders. They had to be people of substantial means and status in society. So when we read references like this, this is out of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. And the, the entire epistle of Ephesians is Paul really talking about what is the church, what constitutes the church. And this is what he says, so you are no longer strangers and aliens. So he's talking to Ephesians. These are not Jews. These are people today that we would say are Turkish they're a part of today modern day Turkey so you're no longer strangers he says to these Gentiles or aliens people outside but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God 
Paul also says, also writing to the Ephesians when he writes 1 Timothy. He says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So that's, a, that's the, the plainest statement we're going to get now, that what Paul is talking about when he talks about the household is, is actually, he's using it as a description of the church. The household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And if we had time, we don't have time today, but we would see that that expression says that God's design for the church is not just for us to come in, experience worship, experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit, experience the gifts of the Spirit, experience the preaching of the Word, but the purpose of church is so that when that happens, we can go out into society and challenge lies. And there are lots of them. Because the church is called to be the pillar and buttress of truth in a society, in a culture. That's why when people say religion and politics don't mix, they either do not understand what religion is or they do not understand what politics is. Because to say that religion and politics don't mix is to say that when those in political power seek to promote lies, we should be silent and not intervene. And that is not true. The church is called to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Peter, so that we understand, Peter, as well as Paul, used household language. So we find Peter saying in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, notice that, spiritual house, to offer spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And he goes on in the same epistle to describe the same thing this way. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, where he says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So Peter uses household language. So in fact, what we're seeing here from both Paul, I've given two references from Paul, and Paul uses it, many many times and so does Peter but I've given those two examples is that in describing what Christ has done for believers that is brought us into his household God's household the apostles Peter and Paul are both using the same picture the picture of a household and again I say it's it might be easy for us to think what what they're simply talking about is a family mum dad and the kids but they're not they're talking about something that was so commonplace in the Greco-Roman world, completely out of place in our world. We have little idea, unless we study this, what they're talking about. And because of that, we don't quite understand what they mean by the church. So you have people who have all kinds of silly notions about what a church is because they don't understand what the New Testament is teaching about church. So here's my aim this morning. I do have a, a bit of a, an agenda. As we look at this, we're going to look at what it meant to belong to a household. And I want to show you that there were different categories of people that were part of a household. 
I'm going to show you where they're, dis- where they're talked about, where they're discussed in the New Testament. And it's my hope that as we look at each of these roles, we will see something very, very clear that the apostles are trying to point out. And that is this, that when you belong to a household, you are a part of a household that means you are partners in that household. You all have a role to play. And I hope that becomes really, really clear. As I talk about one of the roles in the household, that is the householder, it is my hope that in this church, for us to go where we're, God wants us to go, that there'll be men and women who go, if that's what it takes for us as a church to fulfill God's will and destiny for us, I'm in. If that's what it takes, I'm in. So I want to talk today about what it meant to belong to a household, what belonging to a household meant. So let's have a look at these individual roles for a start, and I'm going to start with the householder. We have references to householders. In fact, they're identified as householders. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, I didn't baptise anyone except maybe for the household of Stephanus. He was a householder. So the householder, this is the responsibilities that he had. Firstly, he had overall responsibility. And I say he, and it generally was a he, but not in every instance. In fact, there are examples in the book of Acts where the householder was a woman. At least, at least one, maybe two examples of this are given in the book of Acts. Secondly, the, the householder was responsible for the provisions for the household. Now, they had probably, almost certainly, to put on at least two meals a day for everyone in their household. And again, it's, as you'll see the roles as I unpack this, you'll see we're not just talking about mum, dad and the kids. This is not a table for four or a table for five or six. This could be as many as 40 or even 50 people that the householder, depending on his status was having to provide for every day. So you can imagine that when the apostles go in and lead a householder to Christ, it's by his decree, the, the message of the apostles was opened up to the household and the book of Acts tells us that in every instance, they all turned to Christ. The Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, Paul tells the householder, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your household shall be saved. So we have a, quite a responsibility that, that he had to carry. Thirdly, it was, it was his responsibility to protect his household. So the architecture, as we'll see in a moment, had gates so people could sleep safely at night. And you might think, well, that, gee, that's not much of a, you know, how, how dangerous could first century Roman world be? The answer, very, very dangerous. Life was very cheap. And it was his responsibility to protect them. When the women went out from the house, the householder ensured that they were accompanied by a male slave. And my guess is he probably didn't look like a skinny runt. That's my guess. What else did the householder have responsibility for? Here's the thing, and Aristotle says, he actually talks about these roles. 
And Aristotle says the householder was to be a model of virtue. What does that mean? It means ethical living. In other words, he was to be the model and the benchmark for his household of what a good person was. That's what it means to be a virtuous person. To exhibit qualities of forgiveness, qualities of patience, qualities of kindness. And and it was in the interest of the householder to exemplify those things. Because if any of his household were out in the street and they said, Oh, Stephanus, he, oh, yeah, you might think he's a nice guy, but honestly, I live with him and I'm telling you, the householder's reputation would have been ruined if that was the case. So it was in their interest to be a virtuous person. And then, fifthly, the householder was responsible for the education of the children of the household. And again, this is, you know, people like Aristotle and, and some of the other Greco Roman antiquity. Our writers, they all talk about this. It was a well-established fact. But now, here's the interesting thing. I've listed those. I hope you've taken notes because now I'm going to give you the scriptures for them. Because what Paul now does is he will talk about each of those roles and he will give what's called a theology behind it. What that means is, here's how we as Christians now see the role of this person. So let's have a look at this. The householder had three main roles. His first role was as husband, literally in this order, was to be a husband. Secondly, he was to be the father, a role of father to his children. This is a defined role he had to fulfill. And thirdly, he had to be the master. Now these are the three words that Aristotle gives in describing a householder. Husband, father, master, and it's the same person. So again, when the, the apostles went into a, a a new town, a new city, and they preached to a householder, it was almost like getting not just a ready-made church, but a ready-made pastor. Because if this householder came to Christ, the apostles would train this person in the ways of Christ. So it was like a ready-made pastor and a ready-made church. I mean, sometimes we put a lot of effort into church planting, and not that having 10 or 20 people is not a big deal or a great achievement it is but sometimes these church plants in the book of acts could have already been ready-made churches of 40 50 60 and some commentators suggest many more people ready-made churches so this explains the rapid expansion of the church in the first century a very very clever move but now follow this first timothy chapter 3 verse 1 so again if it's written to first timothy it's written to the ephesians And it says this, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, overseer, uh, there's two words that the New Testament use. One is episkopos, which is where we get the word episcopalian, which is what Anglicans are called in America. And another word is presbyteros, which is where we get the word presbyterian from, which is used everywhere. He desires a noble task. Verse 2, it says, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach. There's the virtue. The husband of one wife. There's the husband. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Able to teach his children at least. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money because householders were people of usually considerable wealth, but that was no longer their focus, the apostles telling us. He must manage his own, see that, household well, 
with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. This is what I was saying before. You couldn't afford to be living on way within the confines of the household and then going out in public and being someone completely different. You, You couldn't afford to do that. You had to be a person of virtue. So that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Notice what Paul also says to these householders who've now been appointed as pastors of their households. Husbands, he says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And we read that and go, well, yes, so they should. But not in the Greco-Roman world. Marriage was rarely done on the basis of love. It was usually done for commercial or political reasons. So this is pretty, this is radical. Paul's giving a theology. See why husbands should love their wives? Are there any husbands here who do not love their wives? Good. So we're all on board with this, but see why he says it? Because this is how Christ loves you, the church. You should love your wife exactly the same way. The next role, fathers. Husbands, fathers. Fathers, same person. Do not provoke your children to anger. Now I'm sure, I don't even have to ask. There's no fathers here who ever get angry with their children, so we'll just gloss over this one. Please hear the sarcasm in my voice because I'm a father who gets angry with my children and then sometimes have to repent and ask for forgiveness. So we're all prone to this. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There's that role. Notice the next role, masters. Husband, father, masters. Romans chapter 6 verse 9. Sorry, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 9. Ephesians 6 9. Masters, do the same thing to them. Uh, That is how God treats us with kindness and he's the great master. And stop your threatening, knowing knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Hear the theology. Hear the why behind the what. You treat them with gentleness and kindness. Why? Because you have a master in heaven who treats you that way. And whatever he does, you do. That there is no partiality with him. Now again, we might think, yeah, of course, we're all equal. That is not the way the Greco-Roman world of the first century thought. They thought in terms of slaves, and I quote, are tools to be used. That's Aristotle who said that. And I'll show you that in a moment. What about the next role within the household? It's the role of the wife. What did the wife have to do? What was her responsibility? What did it mean for her to belong to the household? The first thing she had to do was to support her husband. The second thing she had to do was to manage the household. So he was responsible for it, but she had to manage it. The third thing she had to do was to nurture her children. She was responsible for that and often had a lot of help with servants and the like. So let's have a look at Paul's theology for women. Out of respect for Christ, be courteously reverent to one another. This is from the message translation. Wives, understand and support your husbands in ways that show your support for Christ. It's a, an interesting rendering of that passage. 1 Timothy 5.14 So I would uh, have younger widows marry. 
that word younger widows is actually the word younger women, which in the context sounds like he's talking about widows. That's why it's translated as widows in our English Bibles. But notice what he says to these younger women. It's a good thing for you to want to get married. You should get married, he says, and you should bear children. But then notice the next thing he says you should do, manage their household and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So the husband was responsible for all of these things, but the woman actually did the day-to-day running. She was the manager. Paul, making a point about how women were called to nurture their children, just assumes that his readers understand this when he says that this was his attitude toward the Thessalonians when he says this, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So there's the the role of the woman. What about for the children of the household? What was their responsibility? What did they have to do? Firstly, they had to obey and respect their parents. Secondly, they had to learn, note these three words, logos, ethos, pathos. No, they're not the three musketeers. Logos, ethos and pathos means logic, how to think clearly, how to argue a point, ethics, how to live right, morally, and how to be self-controlled. This is what children were expected to learn. And then thirdly, they were expected to learn skills that were needed to contribute to the household. We'll come to this in a moment. So now let's have a look at Paul's theology supporting this when he talks about this from a Christian perspective in the household of God, the church. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 24-25, Paul uses the picture of someone in the household, whom we haven't mentioned yet, who was called a pedagogue, which is a designation of a slave or a servant. And the pedagogue's role was to escort the children of the householder to school, a private school, where they learned those three things, logos, ethos, pathos, and then collect them when school was over and bring them back safely and then drill them on what they'd learned. Pedagogue. Today we use the word pedagogy to mean teaching. But it was the role of the slave of the first century to do that. There was a role, a slave. So now let's come to slaves in the household. And I want to digress just for a moment because there's a lot of criticism about the Bible because it it talks about slavery. And it talks about slavery in a way that sounds like the Bible might even be endorsing it. And I want to show you very briefly that the Bible does nothing of the sort. It doesn't endorse it. In fact, not only doesn't it endorse it, the New Testament says, for those who've been going through the through the Titus Bible study series that our home groups are doing, you'll notice that Paul condemns as wickedness and evil slave trading. And if you know anything about history, it was William Wilberforce who, before he died, was able to have legislation passed banning slave trade. He was a Christian, a very committed Christian. So historically, Christians have worked to campaign against slavery. I want to show you a, a, a photo of a gigantic billboard that was put up across America. It was funded by the American Atheists Society. Imagine driving down the highway and seeing this. 
Slaves, obey your masters. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Now that sounds, you know, if someone said that to you, your Bible encourages slavery and condones slavery. How would you respond? Because, well, it, it says it right there, doesn't it? Colossians 3, 22. And they, they make the point that this is Bronze Age ethics brought to you by the year of the Bible and the House of Representatives of the American Congress. Now, that's, a, that's a, quite an attack. How about this one? This is a meme that I'm told several got shared, I'm not sure how many millions of times, literally. This is a meme that, that appeared on Facebook or something. And if you, know, if you don't know what a meme is, trust me, you're not missing out on much. But it's meant to be a little postery thing with a sort of witty comment that you know things that can make an in-depth intellectually rigorous argument in less than a twitter tweet and and if you can see this it says god missing the top word god could have banned slavery or shellfish so which one did he decide to ban shellfish now this is ridiculous but there are people in the last couple of years who were prominent Christians and I think of uh, Hawk Nelson the lead singer of Hawk Nelson who left Christianity and walked away from Christ because of memes like this and I've got to tell you I'm, I'm thinking how on earth can you grow up in a church for the for the bulk of your life and no one has ever told you that the slavery in the Bible is not the slavery that America practiced or England practiced or anyone in the last two centuries or three centuries practiced, it bears no resemblance to that. Hmm. The, the slavery that was in the Bible happened on the basis of four different reasons. And again, it, it didn't look like Negroes uh, kidnapped from, from the Congo or Sierra Leone or wherever of, of uh, West Africa and taken in the, the bottom of uh, Hulk ships to a land and treated ab- abominably. That's not what we're talking about when the Bible talks about slavery. It's, it's actually describing people who could have been taken as prisoners in war, and I'm not saying that's good either. Secondly, it could have been used to describe people who were born to a slave and they automatically become slaves. Thirdly, it could have been used to describe people who committed a heinous crime and were, their penalty was not to go to prison, their penalty was to become a slave. And fourthly, it could have been people who couldn't service a debt and they worked off their debt and, and they all had a time frame. So when the Bible uses the word slavery, really it's a servant and that servant was not someone who was treated abominably. In fact, they would be, if you saw them, if we could go back in a time machine to first century Greco-Rome and we were walking down the street of Rome, even though one in five of the people in the city of Rome were slaves, you you probably couldn't tell. You couldn't have told. You, You wouldn't have been able to tell. So it's important to understand that everyone in the household, including the servants who had roles like being a tutor to children or being a guardian to the women or being people who were cooks or being people who 
worked in businesses owned by the householder were looked after pretty well. It was in the interest of the householder to look after them, as we've seen. And they all had to contribute in some way. So let me remind you that we looked at what the Greco-Roman house architecture looked like. So we're going back to our first instalment. Notice this, was, this is a, Greco-Roman, a typical Greco-Roman architecture. But what I want to point out now is this is the street where the house faced. And sometimes these were two stories as we read in the book of Acts where someone was in the upper story when Paul was preaching and they fell out of the window. So they could have been two stories. But in here, we, right facing the street, there's, there's a window with shutters or a door and it was a shop and possibly another shop. And from that shop... They could have sold cooking items or bakery items, the things they've baked or cooked. They could have sold craft, could have been like Paul was a tent maker. He probably, when he stayed with a householder, contributed out of that shop his leatherworking ability, tent making, which is a synonym for leatherwork. And all of the people in the household had an interest in contributing to the income of the household. That's all we have time for tonight. For a CD copy or premium download of tonight's discussion, please go to our website, findingtruthmatters.org and select Household of God Part 4 from our online store. As we've heard tonight, the householder in Greco-Roman times played a vital role in provision, protection, setting standards for behaviour and so on. God himself is the ultimate householder, his kindness, love and generosity, knowing no limits. More from Dr. Corbett next week as he brings the Household of God series to a close. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Langada Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.